Well, good to be here this afternoon. And preacher, thank you for the invitation and the privilege of being in this meeting. Glad to be able to have it again. And uh, good to see so many familiar faces. Great singing. I would have driven from Florida just to hear that. I heard that song. I've heard of it. I heard it for the first time just about a week or two ago. I'd never heard that before. And I've got it on my phone and I've listened to it a thousand times since then. That's a great song, isn't it? I want you to take your Bible, find 1 Peter chapter number 1, if you would. 1 Peter chapter number 1. I have been preaching through the book of 1 Peter on Sunday mornings in our church. And typically, whatever book that I'm preaching through, that's my favorite book in the Bible. So right now, 1 Peter is my favorite book in the Bible. I love it. Every verse is so rich and is so full. And I'm going to be very simple this afternoon. I know what time it is. I know that dinner is next. I'm well aware of all of those things. And so I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 18. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ... As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. As I've gone through First Peter on our preaching series, it has struck me how often Peter talks about salvation to suffering people because suffering people usually want to talk about their sufferings what i am going through trials if you'll sit down i'll tell you about my trials and the storms that i'm going through when you are buffeted when you are battered when you are bewildered that's the thing that really takes all of your energy all of your time all of your thought matter but peter keeps bringing them back over and over back to their salvation. He doesn't deny their suffering. He talks about suffering a lot in this book, but he keeps bringing them back to salvation. It's as if that even in suffering, your focus needs to be not on yourself, but it needs to be on Christ. Whenever we talk about salvation, the word that we most commonly use is the word saved. And that's a good Bible word. It means to be rescued. It means to be delivered. And though the word saved is a good Bible word, it's actually not a big enough word to, to tell everything that happened to me when I got saved. You cannot define God with just one attribute. You can't define salvation with just one description. And so the Bible employs a great number of words to tell us everything that was involved in God saving us. Great words. Words like justification whereby God declares a sinner not guilty, changes his standing before God. Great word. Uh, the word propitiation that you find in 1 John chapter 2, where the sacrifice of Christ is the satisfaction of the wrath of God against sin. Uh, the word redemption to set free by the payment of a price. Great words. And, and salvation is, is a general word, but you need these specific words to tell you all of these different aspects of salvation. Justified doesn't say anything about the price of salvation. Propitiation doesn't say anything about our legal standing. And redemption doesn't deal with justice. You have particular words for that. 
You wouldn't use justification if you were emphasizing the price of salvation. Uh, you wouldn't use redemption if you were emphasizing the legal aspect of salvation. Many words, many aspects, one salvation. And you will notice in verse number 18 that Peter uses the word redeemed. That we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And as great as the work of creation, the work of redemption is much greater. It cost God more to redeem us than it did to make us. The work of creation is the work of his finger. The work of redemption is the work of his arm. It's a great passage. In this passage, you'll find that there is a people to free. The word redemption implies bondage or slavery. In the first century, historians tell us that there were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire, so everybody would know something about slavery. And when Peter says that we have been redeemed, we have to ask, what are we redeemed from? And he tells us that in verse number 8. We're redeemed from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. And that's a fit description of every un saved person, a vain, empty existence, living for things and looking for happiness only to leave this world and to go into eternity without God and without one thing that you lived for. He's describing our former life as driven by sinful lust and it's ignorant of God and his grace and it's a vain existence to never bring glory to God, held captive by any number of lies, by false religion. But what a great redemption when you consider what he has redeemed us from. The word redemption also tells us there is a payment to furnish. Because redemption implies bondage, but it also implies that there is a price to free that person from bondage. And so Peter tells us what can and what cannot redeem us. He says, for as much as you know, that you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Silver and gold were the most precious metals known to man in that day. But even those things cannot redeem a man from sin. You cannot buy your way out of the bondage of sin. In the Old Testament, there were things that you could redeem with money, but the soul of man is not one of them. And in no instance in the Old Testament was money ever paid as an offering for sin. Because perishable, corruptible things cannot redeem us what can. The price is nothing less than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Precious to the Father because it's the blood of his Son. Precious to the Son because it was his life that was poured out on the cross. Precious to the saint because it's the price of our salvation. So he tells us about the people to free and the payment to furnish. And then there is a plan to fulfill in verse number 20. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. That simply tells you that Calvary was not an afterthought with God. That Calvary is not plan B. It was the plan of God before man ever sinned. Before there was ever sin, a sacrifice was planned. Before there was ever guilt, grace was already laid out. The plan of God for sinners was in the heart of God before sin was in the heart of sinners. And so what a wonderful passage that spells out this wonderful truth of redemption. But I want to take the passage this, this afternoon for just a few minutes and I, I want to set the doctrine of redemption aside and I, I want to bring out a more practical application because the passage not only tells us about salvation, but it tells us something about the God of our salvation. In fact, I want you to look down, if you would, in verse number, in verse number 21. He says, who by him... 
to believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. Here's the phrase that I'm interested in, that your faith and hope might be in God. Now, if you're looking for Bible, if you'll back up to verse number 17, and if you look at verse 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, you will notice that according to the punctuation, all of that is one sentence. Verse 17 to 21 is one sentence. And the conclusion of that long sentence is this statement, that your faith in hope might be in God. And I want you to think about it. There is not one situation that you can go through in life that God won't pull you through. Discouragement, depression, bewilderment, whatever it is, I can show you a hundred verses that says that your faith and hope might be in God. It might be hard to trust. It might be difficult to trust God. It might be difficult to see God working or to trust God when your heart is overwhelmed. But here's what Peter is doing. He is giving us redemption and here's what he says. He says that God has redeemed us and that is the reason. That's the end result. That's the end goal of our redemption that your faith and hope might be in God. And I want to look at this passage through that perspective. It says something about redemption, but it says something about the God of redemption. And in our text, there are three reasons why you can put your faith and hope in God. And this is so simple, it's embarrassing, but it's what the Lord has given me. Here's the first reason according to the text. It is because God knows. Now stay with me. Have you ever followed somebody in a car, not knowing where you were going, but trusting that they knew where they were going. In fact, I won't even put it in the GPS. I'm just following you. You know where you're headed. I'll just follow you. But have you ever followed somebody in the car not know where you're going, but then get the idea? I don't think he knows where he's going either. (laughs) It seems like that we are going around in a circle. You don't have to know the directions. You don't have to know where you're going. You don't have to know what is ahead as long as you are confident that the fellow you're following does know. You don't have to know about tomorrow if the God that you're following knows about tomorrow. Now now here's why I say that. Here's what Peter says. Peter says that you can trust God because he knows what he's doing. You can trust God because he's already got it laid out. God has a plan and he's performing that plan and that plan works. You say, where do you see it? I see it in verse number 20. Look at it. Who, now watch this. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That cross... That son of God dying, that empty tomb, that was no accident. That was God doing exactly what he wanted to do. The word foreordained, it means to make a decision based upon foreknowledge or knowing ahead. Foreknowledge, it is to know something beforehand. It is to determine a course of actions based on what you know is going to happen before it actually happens. The theological word that we would use for that is omniscient. We have an omniscient God. He knows the future before it becomes the present. He knows tomorrow before it becomes today. 
You cannot find a beginning or an ending to the knowledge of God because he knows everything that has ever happened. He knows everything that's happening right now. He knows everything that's going to happen throughout all of eternity. God knows. But I want to take it a step farther. God not only knows what's going to happen, he knows what could happen if other things happen. He knows the decision that you will make. But if you were to make other decisions, he knows what the result of that would be as well. He not only knows what will actually happen, he knows what could potentially happen in any other possible scenario. For example, when I left the hotel just a little bit ago, when we came out of the hotel, we turned right and then we gone down to the line and we turned and that's how we got here. Had I turned left out of the hotel and went down the other road, it is possible that I could have gotten into an accident. I don't know and I will never know because I didn't turn left. But God knows. God knows what could have happened had I turned the other direction. God knew that sin would enter into the world through the disobedience of Adam. He didn't ordain sin. He didn't cause Adam to sin. He didn't force Adam to sin by not giving him a choice. We're not Calvinist here, but he knew the choice and he knew the consequences and he allows the consequences of sin to be played out in the world and knowing that ahead of time God then planned a course of action and he planned salvation through the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ. Adam didn't have to sin, but if he does, and this is what I'm going to do to redeem him from his sin, who verily was foreordained for the foundation of the world. In fact, Revelation 13 and verse 8 says that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Oh, hold on just a minute. I actually happen to know that he was slain 2,000 years ago. That the crucifixion was not before the creation. But Revelation 13, it says he was slain from the foundation of the world. I believe that what that verse is saying is that God knew before creation that his son would die for mankind. So from God's perspective, it was as good as done. He knew what man would do. He knew the penalty of sin. He knew how it would happen. He knew the punishment that he would mete out. And he knew what he would do to save you and I from sin. He, he, he knew, he knew that, that, that he, he knew what you would do when the gospel was presented to you. He knew that when you called out to him that he would save you by his marvelous grace. And that doesn't mean that you had to get saved. It doesn't mean that you are forced into election or that your will is not involved. It simply means that God knew all along. And when God knows something beforehand, he can refer to it in the past tense as if it has already happened. Before the first tree was planted and before the first star was formed, God knew that his son would die on a cross for my sins. And as far as he is concerned, he is the lamb from the foundation of the world. Now let me bring it home to you, all right? I'm not preaching on redemption. That's wonderful doctrine. But, but I want to make it practical. The verse is simply telling you 
that God already knows and God already has a plan for your salvation, but not just in salvation, but in your life and in mine. Listen to me. If the fall of man didn't catch God by surprise, then whatever trial you are going through right now doesn't catch him by surprise either. And who knows, there might be another trial just ahead and you have no idea if it's on the horizon, but God already sees that. Since you don't know that it's out there, you're not making any plans for it, but God already has. I want you to know that he's not going to have to scramble at the last minute to pull you through. He's not going to have to have an emergency meeting of the Godhead and see if we can fix this. He knows what is ahead just like he knew the fall and he has a plan to sustain you just like he had a plan with the cross for the remedy of sin. God knows. You see, you and I live in the realm of time. We have eternity in our heart, but we live in time. But basically, we are captives of the moment. You can't go backward five minutes and you can't go forward five minutes. But we can't say, you know, we, we don't like the way that this service started, so let's rewind to two o'clock and let's start it all. We, we don't have that ability. No. We can't say um, that we know that somebody's getting saved in the service tonight, so let's just go ahead and skip ahead and let's just go ahead and get into that service. We, we can't do that. We, we, we live right now. You, you, can, you can remember the past. You can plan for the future. But all that you can do is live right now in the moment. But God transcends time. God is not bound by time. In fact, there was a time when there was no time. It's called eternity past. God was there before time. God does not live in time. God lives in eternity. So tomorrow is the same as today for him. And he doesn't need to wait for it to get here for him to see what he's going to do. He's already over there. The song said he's already in my tomorrows. He's walking one step ahead. Whether in joy or in sorrow, he'll do just what he said. He'll never leave you lonely in the land of the great unknown. He's already in your tomorrow, so just keep pressing on. Oh, hold on. It's not just that God sees it, but he's already there waiting for you to get there. In the mind of God, the lamb is slain from the foundation of the world. Because yesterday, today, tomorrow, it's all eternity to him. And he doesn't need to wait for it to get here to know what is going to transpire because he's already over there. He could say before Genesis, I'm already in Revelation. And I may not know what tomorrow holds, but my God is already over there in my tomorrows and he's taking care of it and he's laying aside the provisions waiting for me to get there. And whatever trouble lies ahead for you, it's going to be okay because God God will be there waiting for you to show up when you get there. God knows. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? Nothing has ever surprised him. Nothing has ever caught him off guard. And because God already sees it, and because God is already there, God never has to react to anything. You and I are reactionary because we are constantly caught off guard. I plan to fly to New York, but American Airlines most surely will cancel my flight. And so I will have to get on the phone and I will have to schedule another flight and I got to react and I got to do this and, and then I got to come over here and, and, and it's constant just reacting. But God has a plan in place and there was nothing big enough to derail his plan. 
So if you think about the fall and if you think about the curse, you talk about a problem. That's a big problem. In fact, there's never been a bigger problem in the history of mankind. And God saw the worst thing that could ever happen to mankind. And God said, I already have a plan. I already know how I'm going to fix it. I already have the solution in place. And I just want to say that if God has a plan for that, then whatever problem you run into, God already has a plan. I don't know I don't know the worst that could happen to you surely you don't think it would be cataclysmic as the fall and God says if I can fix that I can fix your problem too you look at how wise and gracious his plan is for that you got to say I'm in good hands with the father he's already over on Tuesday waiting for you to get there he already knows the bad news that's coming he's waiting there with the grace and the strength and the help that you're going to need and you can Trust him. God knows. I say secondly, not only does the text tell me that God knows, but it tells me that God cares. Now it's comforting to know that God knows, but only if you can add that God cares. If I knew that tonight that your house was going to catch on fire with your family sleeping inside, it'd be good to have knowledge of that ahead of time. Because I can warn you. I, I can tell you, hey, don't go home tonight or, or, or let's have the fire department. I, I, I would knock on your door. I would do everything that I could to make sure that everybody's saved. Only if I care. That's right. What kind of person would I be if I knew? It's not my problem. It's not my house. Huh? I mean, why, why should I be bothered about that? Huh? In, fact, in fact, if I don't care, it would be better if I didn't know. That's right. right? Because, because knowing and not caring, well, well, what kind of person is that? Yes. And if God knows, but he doesn't care, then what kind of God is that? Amen. The text is telling me something. That God didn't just know, but God cared. Here it is. He says, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Watch this but was manifest in these last times for you. <laughs> now, now, when you do something for somebody, it means that you care for that person. Now, now you can do something because you're in trouble or, or, or you have an ulterior motive or something like that, but when you do something of your own free will for somebody else, it generally means that I care. You, you can send your wife flowers because you think the apology will go smoother or you could send your wife apologies just because she's your wife and you love her. Yes. But when you take a meal to somebody that is shut in or somebody that is sick, it says that you care for that person. You ought to go through the Bible sometime and you ought to just mark every time where the Bible says that God did something for you, for us. Just make a list of everything and I want you to know that he wasn't backed into a corner. He didn't have to it. it wasn't because of some ulterior motive. God saw the fall of man and he planned the remedy before it ever happened and in due time Christ came to this earth to put that plan into action. The Bible says that he was manifested. That word manifested is pointing back to the incarnation when God revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And you have to ask yourself why did that all happen? Go back to that 
baby in the manger of Bethlehem and think about that and follow his life through Nazareth and see him hanging on that tree. See that empty tomb and ask why. I will tell you why. For you. God cared so much for us that he was making sure there was a way for us to be saved. And before God ever made the sun to shine or the moon to reflect the sun, he was thinking about me. I was preaching First Peter yesterday morning. I had a wonderful time. And, and, and look, look to one page over, if you would. I was preaching out of chapter 2. And boy, there was a verse that just kind of got all over me. First Peter 2 verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were. Yeah, well, what a wonderful text. I know, I know it's Monday afternoon. I know we're tired and we're hungry. So I'm, I'm not going to get into this, but, but that's telling us why he was manifested for us. The words for us, for our sins. By the way, can, can we be doctrinal for just a minute? If we could be theologians for just a minute. It points to the doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ. And substitutionary, that, that's a doctrine that's greatly debated, but it's not debated in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. If Christ is not my substitute, then I still occupy the place of a condemned sinner. If my sins are not transferred to him, then they still remain with me. If he didn't bear my penalty, I'll have to bear the penalty. There are no other options. There's not another way. Either he bore my sins or I will bear those sins. And I love the statement who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. I told him yesterday morning when Napoleon Bonaparte was, um, was military leader in France and he was trying to conquer Europe and, and one of the problems that they had is they didn't have enough men to fight in his armies. And so in France they had a conscription system. It's kind of like a draft. In fact, at one time in France you had to be registered for the conscription in order to be a citizen in France. And the way that it would work is they would have a draft, have a lottery. And Brother Gravely, when they needed men, then they would just pick your name out. And if they picked your name out, they would come and you had to go serve in the army. Now, if you had extenuating circumstances where you simply could not, then you had the option that you could get somebody else, if they would, to go fight in your place. But either you had to go or you had to get somebody else to go. And, and the story is told that they, they, they drew a man's name and they, the officers would went to his house and said, We've just, we, you have been selected, you've been drafted to go into the army. And he said, I can't. He said, I'm dead. They said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, I'm already dead. They said, what do you mean? He said, well, two years ago, I got drafted before. And he said, when I got drafted and was ready to go, he said, my friend came to me and he said, hey, listen, you're married and you got young kids. I'm single. I don't. I'm going to go to battle in your place. And said, he went to battle in my name and said he was killed in battle. He said, I'm already dead. According to the record, I'm dead. They looked it up and sure enough, that man died. Lord, help me. The man died in his name. They appealed it to Napoleon himself. And Napoleon said, yep, he's already dead. He can't die twice. He's already died. I'm telling you, I don't have to die for my sin because somebody has already died in my place. Thank God for that. 
I love this. So can, can I mention this? Can, can, do I have time? I got, I got time. Well, look at this real quick. Who, no, no, watch, look, look at your Bible. Look at your Bible. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. When you have a statement and part of that statement could be left out and the statement still be grammatically and factually correct, then that part of that statement is there for emphasis. For example, look at it. You could say, who bear our sins in his own body on the tree? And that would be true. But you have that little statement, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree and since that's added in there that becomes the point of emphasis that's what it really wants you to notice is that he himself did it and he did it by himself he did it alone he didn't have no help it wasn't no angel wasn't no cherubim wasn't no prophet no he who by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I, I do not I do not fully understand how that every sin ever committed was dumped onto him and he took my sin in his body. I understand the theology and I understand the implications and I could teach a Bible class on it but there is something in my heart that just says there's a little bit more to that that every lie and every abortion and every divorce and every adultery, every fornication that all of it was placed in his body and God the Father judged him as if he had done all of that. But all I know is that he drank the cup of sin for me. He was made a curse for me. He took the wrath that I deserved. He was the serpent on the tree for me. And God saw me in my sin. And God said, I not only know, but I care. And I'm not trying to be sappy about this, but I'm telling you the father is for me. Jesus became a man for me. Jesus lived a sinless life for me. Jesus died on the cross for me. Jesus raised from the dead for me. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's the doctrine. Let me make it practical. God knows God cares not just for you to be saved, but he cares for your life as well. God cares for you right now as a father cares for his child. God cares for you. If he cared enough to do that to save you, he cares enough to keep you. If he cared enough to meet your greatest need, then don't you think he cares to meet your lesser needs? God knows. God cares. There's a third truth we're going to eat. But there's a third thing that Peter tells us, and that is that God can. Look at verse 21. Who by him to believe in God that raised him up from the dead? You know anybody else who can do that? Do you know anybody else in the human or the supernatural realm that can give life or bring back somebody from the dead? There is only one that can make a man out of clay, breathe into his nostrils the breath of life and that form of clay become a living being. There is only one that can speak into a grave and a man that's been there for four days walk out. There's only one, there is only one that can raise his begotten from the grave. Do you know why you can put your faith and trust in God? Because he can. 
You say, can what? Whatever. Doesn't matter. What do you need him to do? If he can speak life back into the dead, if he can raise his son from the grave, if even death is powerless to stop him, he can take care of your problem too. He can meet your need. He can answer the confusion in your heart. He can take care of you. There's a style of argument in logic. It's called the greater to the lesser argument. It basically says that if the greater is true, then you have to know that the lesser is true. If you can do the greater, then surely you can do the lesser. Hold your finger right here. Look at Matthew chapter 26. I'm hurrying. Look at it. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you should eat or what you should drink. But yet for your body, what you should put on is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment. Behold, the fowls of the air, for they are so not, neither do they reap nor gather in the barn. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Jesus is saying, don't worry about your provisions, the birds of the air. They don't. They're fed by God. And if God can feed every sparrow in the field, it should be no problem to feed you. He says down in verse number 28, why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow not, they toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon, all his glory was not raiment like one of the Wherefore God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, tomorrow's cast in the oven. Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? If God is powerful enough and has enough resources to paint the landscape with flowers, then taking care of you should be no big deal. Romans 8, he said, what should we say to these things? If God be for us, what can be, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up unto for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? If God gave you the greater, don't you know God will give you the lesser? If God spared not his son, then surely God won't spare anything else. If God can take care of the greater problem of sin, then whatever lesser problem that you have, God can take care of that too. I tell you that your faith and hope can be in God, and here's why. It's because God knows. If God, before the foundation of the world, could look through time, see the greatest problem of sin, make a plan, provide a remedy, then don't you know that your lesser problems are taken care of too? If he knew that, I promise you, he knows what is in your tomorrow. You will never go to God and inform him of your circumstances. You may talk to God about them, but you will never tell God about them. You'll never go to God and God say, I, I wasn't aware of that. I didn't know that had happened in your life. Let me see if I can do something about that. Oh, no. You could be going through a trial right now and you haven't told anybody because it's too private. But I promise you there is a God in heaven. He knows. And he not only knows, but he cares. If he cared enough to send his son to this earth and have him die on that cross, if he cared enough to manifest his son for you and I, I promise you he cares about the little things too. I have to admit to you that somebody sometimes gives me a prayer request and I say I pray for it. I don't really care. I'm honest with you. You ask somebody to pray and maybe they do pray, but they don't pray with the burdened heart that you have. That's not their burden. But I want you to know that the heart of God is touched with the suffering of his people. And you may think that nobody cares, but I promise you God cares. And you can trust him because God can. If I can raise my son from the dead, I can meet your need. 
If even the enemy of death cannot defeat my son, there is no enemy that can stand against me. I've never stumped God. I've never tripped him up. I've never faced a problem beyond his control. And you can have faith and hope in God. Because the more that you know God, the more that you can trust him. And you can get to the place that where the storms of life may batter you, but they will never sink you. Is your faith and hope in him. I'm not a singer, so you sing it with me. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Sing it. Oh, yes. He cares, I know, he cares, his heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior came. Menstrual.